I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's up, everybody? Happy Monday. First full podcast about Mr. Brendan Nunes up in here. So this is the way the new schedule is going to be from now on. For the first half of the show, I'm joined by Timmy G., he hosts the Banner Banter podcast. He covers the Celtics too. And then for the second half of the show, I'm going to be joined by somebody who covers the Jazz as we look forward to Tuesday's game. Timmy, what's good, my guy? Cool. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How do you think that game went? How, how, what are your thoughts, your initial straight after the game thoughts? Uh, the initial thoughts, obviously, minus Kemba, you know, having... I feel like Kemba was very frustrated, like, all game, like, from start to finish. He wasn't happy with the officials and all that, but I just feel like it was a classic case of uh, shots not falling, and that happens from time to time. It just stinks that it happens more for the Celtics uh, more times than not. Yeah, I mean, a lot of their struggles were inside the perimeter this game so usually what we'll see is them uh really struggling from beyond the arc yep and we're screaming for them to penetrate to begin the game they were penetrating they were actually trying to attack the rim but the suns did a great job of shrinking the floor they were making life really difficult around the rim which forced the celtics to operate more on the perimeter i understand why that happened but personally i would prefer to see a little bit more driving dish a little bit more of a, a mid-post pick-and-roll instead of mm-hmm. just running that same high pick-and-roll and then going side-to-side with that. Just because they're shrinking the floor doesn't mean that you can't manipulate that defense with some off-ball actions inside the paint. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the ball movement was terrible. Like, everyone was just standing around. No one was really moving. People were just, you know, watching Tatum like, you know, most most of us at home do. Like, we drool whenever Tatum has the ball. But for the most part, I just felt like there wasn't any ball movement at all. And it was crazy that, like, neither team really, like you mentioned, in the perimeter, like, attacked the rim. I think there was, what, less than 20, 20 free throws with before, like, five minutes left to go in the game or something. Like, the Celtics had 10. The Suns only had eight. So it just felt like it was just, you can't go on the road on this West Coast trip and try and beat a team with a bunch of jump shots. It's just not going to work. Yeah, and I mean, the Suns had a great stretch where they were beating the Celtics with a bunch of jump shots, but they Mm -hmm. were doing so off of really good ball movement. As you said, the Celtics just didn't get to the line much. and Neither team did, to be fair. It was a rather clean game. Yeah. And, I mean, we need to kind of address the albatross in the room right now, which is Kemba Walker going 4 for 20 at 20% from the field. That was... That was rough, right? And I feel like, obviously, it's quite easy to say. But if Kemba hit 50%, 40%, maybe this this would be a different game. If Brown was there, maybe it's a different game. If Smart was there, then obviously the same narrative goes there too. But look, they had what they had. This was, a very, this was the exact same team that managed to pull a win out over the Clippers, which was a great win. Mm-hmm. And they just couldn't seem to get it started. I mean, look, they won't be Carson Edwards as uh, the starting two. That was a shock, a shock to me, a surprise. <laughs> Got rewarded for his good play off the bench. But if you know that he's giving you good minutes off the bench, then maybe you don't start him and then really blunt that offense once uh, the starter starts to sit. Yeah, absolutely. Just because Carson Edwards can't defend Devin Booker. And even if he, you know, he starts out on Chris Paul, they're obviously going to switch on him just like the Clippers tried to do. When uh, Kemba was out there on Kawhi, they would just try and, you know, set screens to make sure that Kemba was on Kawhi. So that's why Devin Booker got going early. And because of that, Devin Booker was able to generate better offense for the Suns all around. I think he had double digit assists, maybe even 12, I think, Um, maybe more, maybe less. But it was somewhere in that range. And I just felt like Devin getting his shots up early helped the Suns offense overall. And I, I was shocked that like Javante wasn't out there to start because I'm not saying Javante can control Devin Booker, but Devin Booker would ha- probably have a harder time shooting over someone like Javante Green rather than Carson Edwards. Yeah, because Javante has got that balance, right? I mean, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it was just, I don't know. I, like, I, I appreciate that Brad, you know, said, hey, you played a great game. Here you go. But you know, at one point, Carson was a minus 19 and the Celtics were down 15. So it just, there are games where Carson is going to work out well and there are other games that he that he won't and, and that happens. That's why you have a deep bench like the Celtics do at times. And, you know, Peyton didn't have a great first half, but he had a much better second half. So that's why you didn't see Carson a lot. So, and that's something that I'm, I've been keeping my eye, eye out on and I'm glad it's finally happened, but I'm trying to figure out how long it's going to take Peyton Pritchard to kind of get back to his old self. And he finally kind of, looked like his old self 
in that fourth quarter a little bit, picking up the ball, defending it, being very good with the ball handler, and then obviously hitting not only just three-pointers, but some pretty deep three-pointers. He was open on a couple of them and stuck them as he should. So it's going to be interesting to see, like, are we not going to see Carson Edwards that much anymore? I mean, we're still going to see him, but just not as much because Peyton's now back. Hopefully he's healthy. Hopefully he gets back into the rhythm that he was in before that MCL injury against the 76ers. And when we're talking about Pritchard as well, there was moments midway through the third and midway through the fourth where he was sharing the floor with Kemba. When you know Kemba's struggling, why don't you put some of those playmaking opportunities into Pritchard's hands and allow Kemba to work off ball and try and hit Kemba in stride going downhill? Because, mm-hmm. look, if Kemba's shots aren't falling off the jumper, then you, the only way he's going to be able to give you any form of offense is through slashing the lane and looking to draw contacts around the rim. Pritchard's really good at making the pass. So I don't know why we're not seeing Pritchard play a little bit more on ball in terms of offense. I get that when Tatum's on the floor, he's demanding the ball. He finished the game with seven assists. But Pritchard has to be able to pick up some of that slack to take that pressure off Tatum, especially when Walker's having a night like this. I mean, Walker went what? He went four for 20 from the field, four rebounds, two assists. He was a minus 16 on the night. I know single game plus minus is uh, one of the worst stats you can ever use, but it's very indicative of his performance. So I would have been more than happy seeing Pritchard run a little bit more at the pick and roll, look to set guys up. This was just a, a really weird game in terms of Celtics basketball because it was a very stagnant offense that yep. relied a lot on um peel off the screen and pull up for the jump shot. And we've seen the Celtics revert to that a bunch, but I don't know what, how would you change? What would you do to change this offense? So, uh, you know, that that's a good question because I, I don't know, because that there, there are just so many things like running through my mind. Like I don't want to take the ball out of Tatum's hands, but I want to see Tatum in the post more because I, I feel like Tatum's footwork is so good in the paint, but I also feel like Tatum's passing and playmaking abilities have improved a great deal this year and I and then I also don't want to like stress over it too much because Jalen Brown hopefully will be back against the Jazz if not maybe against the Raptors or the Pistons this week but I I just feel like overall I would rather have more athletic guys that can playmake out there versus just guys that are just standing around like no offense to Shemi Ojale or anything but Shemi, you know, just stands in the corner. I'd rather have some like a slasher like Javante out there to try and just give different looks just instead of just standing around and just drooling over Tatum or Kemba whenever they have the ball. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. A lot more off-ball movement would be fantastic. It does feel very stagnant at times. If you look at a team like Miami, who to me are one of the best off-ball movement teams in the league, mm-hmm. and, the, and the way they run, like they're setting bun- a bunch of off-ball screens, pin downs to get guys open, and then you might see them set a pin down, and then the guy that comes off then screens for the screener to get that pop, um, yep. that pick and pop off ball. We don't see any of that. We are seeing very much just screen for the ball handler. Maybe somebody lifts out of the corner to create a little bit of driving space. Another thing that was missing in this game that the Celtics found a lot of success with against the Clippers was that open corner pick and roll. They yes. just didn't do it. They were loading both corners, running very big spread and angle pick and rolls. And while that's fine because you have the, the shooters to make that work, when that shot isn't falling, you need to create driving lane space for the rollman. And we didn't really see that. And I, part of me feels like that's when we see the best of Rob Williams operating at the five, is when mm-hmm. is that space for him to roll. Felt like the Suns did an amazing job of shrinking the floor on defense. Yeah, I was really shocked that uh, the Time Lord only got like 10 minutes worth of play because I felt like he could... I don't think DeAndre Ayton's that physical of a player like in any way, shape, or form. So I feel like if you could have... Aiton, or I'm sorry, Time Lord, run the floor against Aiton. I mean, I understand Tristan Thompson has been playing lights out this week. I mean, he had 12 rebounds today. He only scored six points, but he was, I don't know, I, I just feel like Time Lord would have made a big difference in this game, helping spread the floor. I think Time Lord's jumpers, like you mentioned in that corner pick and roll, like his his jump shots are falling, and that gives him confidence. I'm, I've, I've always just been a little disappointed with Brad not seeing the Time Lord more, and I feel like the Time Lord might have helped this team. I mean, Tice played, I think, 35 minutes in this game, pretty close. I mean, Tice played, a, I thought Tice played a very, very good game, but I just felt like Time Lord can help this offense. I feel like his pick and roll is getting a little bit better. And even if he, the one thing that I wish he would do a little bit more was actually when he sets the screen, put his head down and sprint to the rim. I feel like he's very nonchalant like that. And I feel like 
if someone like him can sprint towards the rim after setting a pick, that can also help the offense too. And that can make other teams' defenses switch up how they do things instead of saying, okay, the last two plays, there's been lobs to Robert Williams. Now we have to defend the ball handle a little bit more. And that would then help, for example, if Tatum had the ball, Tatum can now shoot over someone. So I'm just a little frustrated that Timeler didn't get more playing time in this game. And like you said, the, the offense worked and Timeler hit some big shots in that Clippers game. And that's, for me, it's more like I, I completely agree with what you're saying. If he sprints hard, rolls hard to the rim, then the vertical spacing opens up the floor because he's going to draw defenses back with him. So exactly. that three-point shot gets easier. And obviously, some other guys will relocate due to the roll, and then there's going to be somebody open weak side or strong side or wherever it may be. The other thing that I like to see from him is against the Clippers, we saw a lot of short roll offense from him. He was rolled into around about the free throw line extended. Mm-hmm. And then he was creating secondary offense or he had the room to pull up for that jump shot. I don't understand why they moved away from that because they ran similar offense with Daniel Tice. And Tice is, for all he's doing great at the moment, sometimes I do feel like he passes up really good looks. Absolutely. Uh, Whether that be from the free or from the mid-range, there was a couple of plays um, down in the third and again in the fourth where he, he short rolled, got the ball. He had enough space to pull up. But then he would like hold on and look for the next guy that was moving. And nobody really moves off ball for the Celtics, as we mm-hmm. spoke about. So then the, the play is dead, right? I'd like to see him just be like, right, I've got the space. I'm going to fire away. He brings a lot of versatility, versatility on defense. And I like the versatility he brings offensively. I just want to see a bit more aggression from him when it comes to taking his own shots. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing is, like, I feel like he is ga- gaining more confidence this season. You you know, you look at year one, obviously he had some injuries and all that stuff. You look at last year, obviously it's a little bit better, you know, so on and so forth. But this year I feel like he's confident not only with his defensive presence, but with his offensive presence, which I thought going into the season would be huge for this team to have an extra big come off the bench that can actually score, can get to the rim, you can rely on, can finish at the rim because this team, you know, you saw it in this game, they can't really finish at the rim that well, especially if Kemba is having a hard time and getting frustrated and picking up technical fouls and stuff. And Grant Williams you know, he he shot the ball well, but I just don't trust Grant Williams in the post scoring that well. And Daniel Tice, like you said, he misses a, a lot of shots. And it's when you talk about Daniel Tice, I feel like him and Kemba just work well together. And I'm surprised that I don't know if Brad notices that or doesn't notice that. But I feel like Kemba is more comfortable with Tice out there than he is Thompson. So I'm wondering if you were going to see more Tice going forward with Kemba, especially when Tatum goes off on the floor and then, you know, let's just say it's Kemba, Jalen and Tice and then a couple bench guys. I really feel like Kemba likes when Tice is on the floor and he makes better shots, makes better shot selection. And I just feel like they have a good rapport together. And I hope that can continue. And Brad notices that. Yeah, because Tice provides that extra floor spacing, right? He gives Kemba I think Scal called it an out during the pro, uh, the broadcast. Like he gives Kemba Walker an option to pass out once he collapses the defense after dribble drive, mm-hmm. and he also like look. Tice can pick and pop. He can pick and roll. He can pick and short roll. He can set a screen, let the guy roll, and then re-screen for somebody to get somebody else open on the weak side wing or strong side. Tice is so versatile that putting him with a guy like Kemba that has so much gravity, even on an off light like this having Kemba Walker on the floor just opens the court up a little bit more. So Tice does make the most sense in terms of a big man pairing for Kemba. But my biggest concern then is if you slide Tice into that starting unit, that bench lineup really does look blunted offensively. Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, look, I've got to give the guy credit right now because I wrote a piece about him saying he was a mistake. This was one of the better games I've seen from Jeff Teague in a Celtics uniform. It still wasn't great. He went 50% from the field. One, what did no assists again? And my biggest thing is if you bring in a veteran guard after, who's coming off the bench to galvanize an offense, I much would I would much rather prefer him finish with uh, three shots and four assists than eight shots and no assists. Do you know what I mean? I want to yeah. see him. Yeah. I want to see him getting that offense in motion, getting guys moving. We're not seeing that from Tiki. He's not that sort of player. He's very much an ISO dribble drive guy himself. And that's part of the problem as well. Do you think the Celtics have too many guys with very similar skill sets to be able to change things up when it's not working? Yeah, I always thought that. And, you know, I always, like, for example, like when they drafted Romeo Langford, 
Um, I wasn't a big fan of that selection just because I said, okay, you got Brown, you got Hayward at the time, you know, Tatum, you, you got so many guys. And now I just feel like they have too many guards, obviously with Kemba being out with the knee and not being able to play back to backs. And obviously with Marcus being hurt. And then obviously with Peyton being hurt before that, it obviously was good, but I, I, I just feel like there are much, there are too many needs on this team where you don't need to have so many guards, especially with the fact that Tatum has taken such a big role playing point forward now as well. So I, Teague did play well, but I just feel like he's not doing what a veteran NBA point guard should do, which is getting other guys involved. Like you mentioned, I like you, you said it perfectly. Three shots from Jeff Teague and four assists is so much better than Jeff Teague scoring, you know, a couple three pointers and a couple layups. But I also think Jeff Teague's confidence is just gone. Like it's just so far away. I, I kind of want to think it's kind of like a golfer having the yips where every single shot you think's just going to miss. And I feel like he's there. And because at his age and because he's gone from team to team, it's not going to change. So if you can, if Marcus can come back healthy and you have point Tatum and you have Peyton Pritchard and you have Kemba and hopefully Kemba will be playing more back to backs after, you know, the first week of March or so when we have that all-star break, I really don't see the point of having Jeff Teague out there. I'd rather have, like I mentioned earlier, more guys that can move the ball around and make better plays for their teammates. Because when the Celtics move the ball around, they're a pretty damn good team. <laughs> but it's just right now they're not, and Jeff Teague doesn't help that. No, he doesn't. And I completely agree. There's definitely once Romeo Langford's back as well. I've been um I've spoke about Romeo to death on this show, so I'm not gonna go into my uh, unreasonably high expectations of Romeo again. <laughs> But I definitely, I agree. Look, he's more versatile than Teague. Teague is very much a one-trick pony at this point. And I just don't see how he galvanizes a, a stuttering second unit, which they are stuttering, if we're being completely honest. Semi Ojale is another guy that got big minutes again in the game against Phoenix, didn't really do anything to deserve them. Done a little bit of work on the boards, finished with four rebounds, managed to get two assists and two steals, which is more defensively than and uh, offensively than Teague did in terms of facilitation. But I saw a tweet during the game that kind of made me question this, and I I'll kind of lean with the tweet, which was like, if Semi's shot's not falling, why not put Aaron Neesmith on and see if he's shot, if he can make those looks that Shemi's getting set up with? It's been a few. It's been a rough week, ten days for Shemi. I feel like, yeah, I understand what Brad's doing. He's bringing Neesmith along slowly. He's a very raw prospect. But it's games like this where you're really struggling to put the ball in the hoop that you start gambling on a guy that you drafted to be a sharpshooter. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little disappointed in Shemi because I don't, I don't know if you agree, but I felt like Shemi started off the year very well. Like he played his best basketball probably the first, I would say, three weeks of the season. And then I don't know if it's just based on playing minutes or whatever the case may be. Obviously, with Kemba coming back, his minutes are, I'm not saying Kemba and Shemi are playing the same position, but obviously the lineups change and Shemi kind of goes away a little bit. And so I'm sure his confidence isn't there. But Aaron Neesmith playing in this game, I feel like would have been a good thing for multiple reasons. A, would have spread out the floor more, might have helped Kemba get to the rim more, get him to the line, because Kemba did mention the other day he he's not that he's getting more confident stopping on a dime with his knee. Obviously that was a big concern going in because of how hard he stops in a split second to try and get a layup to try and, you know, cardiac Kemba jumper, whatever the case may be. So to bring in someone that can spread the floor. And the other thing is, is Neesmith has to learn how to play NBA defense. And I feel like this would have been a good game. I'm not saying he would have been able to defend Mikel Bridges or Cameron Johnson or anyone like that. But to give that kid experience down the road, I feel like when you're down 15, 16 points, and if when they cut down that lead, he's out on the floor. Now the next game when he's out on the floor saying, hey, I contributed last time. I cut the lead from six to five. I'm good. I agree. Neesmith should be out there a little bit more. I get the whole, you know, nice and slow thing. But at some point, you just got to take a risk because clearly Brad took a risk today starting Carson Edwards because he had a nice game against the Clippers. Why not take a risk and just put Neesmith out there for two, three minutes? Exactly that. Yeah, I completely agree. But giving him those few extra minutes to see whether he can make the looks that Shemi's not converting, 
that isn't as much of a risk as starting a free big lineup like they did against the Clippers. I don't, <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're going yeah. up against one of the best teams in the league and you're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw a starting lineup out that includes three big men. So if you're willing to take that risk, that speaks volumes to me for how far away Brad thinks Neesmith really is from being able to contribute, whether that's because he loses his, um, his man on defense a bit too much or whether he just doesn't feel like he knows the sets. If Brad's willing to gamble and start Carson Edwards as a starter and then or run a free big lineup against the Clippers, that's very indicative of his thought process towards Neesmith. That's what I've taken away from this. Oh, no, I, I agree. And, and, and it's actually kind of scary if you think about it, the fact that they thought so highly of him. They probably didn't think he was going to be available. A lot of people thought he might have you know, gone 12 or 13 because uh, the Celtics picked him up at 14. But that, to me, is a little scary because I get – He's a rookie. He didn't have uh, the summer league. He didn't have a full training camp. He got hurt in January, so he didn't play a lot, you know, to end his college career, if you will, even though he was only a sophomore. So my whole thing is I'm okay with being patient, but it's February. Like, how much longer do we have to wait to see a lottery pick play well? And the thing with Romeo, when he was a rookie, sure, he was hurt. I don't think Aaron Neesmith's hurt. I think he's fully over that foot injury. And plus, he also had to play. Romeo had to try and beat out Hayward and Brown and Tatum. And I think, was Marcus Morris on the team then? Or am I having a big brain fight? I, I, was Marcus Morris on the team when Romeo got drafted? No, I think he was, he was technically, technically yes, but he left before yes. the season started. Yeah, okay, okay. So I just feel like Romeo has had so many people in front of him where it just didn't work out. But Neesmith, they need someone like him. This is a huge opportunity. So is it is it Brad not trusting him, or is it just Neesmith not actually being or playing up to the full potential that the Celtics thought he would be? I mean, part of it as well is going to be there's not enough pra- there hasn't been a lot of practice time, so maybe Brad hasn't seen enough of Neesmith to understand where he's at at the moment or what needs what type of minutes he needs to be getting. But if you're talking about what Romeo went through, Romeo went through a very similar hurdles last season. He had no summer league. He came into the league injured. He had to work himself into the rotation. And I do feel like he got more opportunities than what Neesmith's getting at the moment. So again, I'm just not sure whether maybe this wasn't Brad's personal guy that he wanted in the draft. Uh, But there's definitely a clear gap for the skill set of Neesmith on that bench unit that the Celtics are screaming for and could have really done with during uh, the stretch of this game. Yep. Look, all the credit goes to Phoenix here. They've done an incredible job of making life difficult. They really did shrink the floor. They pinched real, real tough on the wings. And then offensively, Chris Paul is just a master of pick-and-roll offense. He was using DeAndre Ayton cutting as a, as a moving screen so many times, and it opened up that mid-range game for him fantastically. So Phoenix were a tough ask for anybody, but I do feel like this was the Celtics game to lose rather than the Suns game to win, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what's also crazy is I feel like Chris Paul missed a lot of open shots. I mean, eventually he made the tough ones, but if Chris Paul made a couple of those open shots that I I feel like the Celtics weren't really worried about Chris Paul when he didn't have the ball, which obviously Chris Paul is one of the better point guards in the league probably ever. But I was very curious to see, because I don't think Chris Paul is that bad of a shooter. I understand he's a little bit older. He's not the same shooter as he might have been when he was in New Orleans or when he was playing with the Clippers or whatever the case may be. But if he hit a couple of those wide-open, top-of-the-key three-pointers, this game would have been over at the end of the third quarter. And But the patience that Chris Paul has, oh, and for someone who played you know point guard, because I'm only like five foot ten my entire life, I wish I had that much patience. I mean, I don't even have that much patience when I'm sitting at a red light, but the patience that he has to wait and find the person cutting or rolling to the hoop is unbelievable. And I I could talk about Chris Paul all day playing basketball, but the thing that I was really impressed with with the Suns is like, I knew going into the game, they only allowed like the fifth fewest points, either the fifth or sixth fewest points, but I couldn't believe, like you mentioned, how much they just shrink the court down and make it so difficult for the other teams. And it's not like the Celtics saw a zone because we all know the Celtics stink against the zone, but like they just did a great job of making sure the shots were tough. They couldn't swing the ball around. 
And it was a very impressive game plan by Bonnie Williams. They do. I can't agree more in terms of the way that Phoenix really do put pressure on teams once they penetrate that perimeter. We're going to, the Celtics are going to see something very similar in Utah, but who funnel a lot of the offense um, through the perimeter, past the perimeter, into the paint, and then you know they funnel everybody towards Gobert. So they've had the Celtics have had a little bit of a taste of what's to come Tuesday. Look, mm-hmm. the Celtics were good enough that they should have won this game if they could operate off ball more. It's been a narrative that has stuck with them for probably the last 18 months, a lot of stagnation when it's very much uh, ISO pick and roll, I like to call it, where you're basically running a pick and roll in isolation because everybody else is <laughs> spreading the floor. Yep. And I understand, the, I understand the reasoning behind spread offense and spread pick and rolls and the space that it creates, but if nobody's moving then it's very easy to shrink that floor run, guys. And Phoenix read their skating report perfectly. Yeah, no, leads, leads us up to what we see what how the Celtics bounce back against Utah on Tuesday, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously you hope that Jalen comes back, but if not, you cannot run the same type of offense you did against the Suns because DeAndre Ayton is not a shot blocker, not a rim defender in any way, shape, or form. And you're going up against the defensive, you know, a defensive player of the year. Donovan Mitchell almost had a triple double today against the Pacers. This, the Jazz are, in my opinion, much, much, much better than the Phoenix Suns. They can defend better and they can score the ball better too. So not only, you know, Devin Booker is a heck of a scorer. Cameron Johnson obviously had a heck of a game. Mikel Bridges started off, started off very well, but the Jazz overall are a better team. So the Celtics need to be prepared to run around or hopefully run around in circles, get open, cut. The other thing that I, I sorry, my mind's going all over the place, but one of the things that I noticed before this West Coast trip started was there was a lot of baseline backdoor cuts, kind of like the Avery Bradley days when he was playing for the Celtics. And I just feel like the last couple of games, they haven't been using that style of offense. And I feel like that has affected them a lot. Yeah, those baseline cuts have opened up so much for the wings up for the, in the Celtics offense. And you're right, they haven't, they've kind of moved away from that. It's like the Celtics find things that work put them in the bank for later down the line and then start experimenting elsewhere, right? Instead of finding what works and then building out from that, they'll say, right, this works. We'll put this in the playbook. Mm -hmm. Now we'll, now we'll struggle again for another couple of weeks until we find something else that works. And then we'll have that. (laughs) So it's incredibly frustrating. It really is. I'm not going to overreact to one game. I thought that the Celtics did a really good job of clawing their way back into it down the stretch uh, a lot of that credit goes to Peyton Pritchard and his intense defense and shot making ability mm-hmm. but yeah this was a it was a very weird game uh, very very weird last guy I want to touch on before I let you get out of here Timmy is what did you think of Grant Williams over the last week he's uh, for me he's really t- turned a corner after struggling to start the year yeah, uh, Grant Williams has been absolutely fantastic, I think, uh, especially his shooting. You know, it, it's crazy to think, you know, he missed, what, his first 25 three-pointers that he took in the NBA, and now, like, ever since then, he's hit, like, 40%, so obviously that is great. Um, you know, I just wish, I always say this, I wish Grant Williams would do that fake growth that, you know, Jason Tatum did. You know, everyone was freaking out that Tatum grew in the offseason. I wish Grant Williams could randomly do that, because if Grant Williams was two inches taller, this team would be in much better shape. But Grant Williams has played very well. I feel like he has handled his benching very, very well because he did not play a lot of minutes, um, especially after that 76ers game. He didn't, uh, I think the first 76ers game, might have been the second. It was either the first or the second 76ers game. He didn't get a lot of playing time. And as a young guy, that can go one of two ways. You can either spiral and just lose all your confidence, but he came back, took, you know, took his beating, if you will, and came back and played very well, and he's played very well. And if he can, can if he can keep this up, that is a very, very important piece to this team, especially coming off the bench. Because if Danny doesn't trade for a four, you know, using the trade exception or whatever the case may be, Grant Williams is going to have to be called on a lot, especially off the bench. Or who knows? Maybe Brad would even start him at the four, but who knows? But I, I think it will be very interesting to see if Grant can keep this up because the big thing with Grant Williams is consistency. He's had a nice week. Can he do it again next week? Because he hasn't done it for the first couple weeks, and then he played well for a little bit, and then he didn't play well for a little bit. So if Grant can stay consistent, that will be a big development for this team going forward. Completely agree. I feel like his skill set is so unique that as he starts to figure out where his role is in the NBA and how he can affect teams, whether that's through the dribble handoffs that we saw in the preseason, 
the fake DHOs that we've seen where he likes to fake the DHO and turn yeah. the corner. Mm-hmm. That that pull-up three that he's adding to his bag from all around the perimeter at the moment. There's a lot to like about Grant. And also we saw flashes in this son's game of his post game, which is how he got made his name during college. So I'm yep. excited. I really am. I think that Grant Williams is going to figure it out. Whether or not he's a long-term piece for the Celtics or he, these performances now are just building up trade value that could be used in a trade down the line is something that remains to be seen. We're not going to know that. Uh, none of us have the inside scoop on what Danny Ainge is thinking. I don't think many people within the organization probably have that inside <laughs> scoop either. So, Timmy, man, I want to say thank you for you jumping on with me. Do you want to let everybody know where they can find you? Uh, yeah, uh, Banner Banter Podcast uh, on Twitter. It's Banner Banter 18. And then on Facebook and Instagram, it's uh, Banner Banter Podcast. And uh, I appreciate you letting me hop on. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome, man. No, pleasure's all mine. I had a good time. Thank you very much, guys. If you've enjoyed this, then make sure you go check out Timmy's work. He releases once a week, is it, Timmy, or twice? Yeah, yeah, every Monday. Monday morning around 9 a.m. Eastern time is when I when I release my podcast. So you can listen to Celtics blog on the way to work, Timmy, during your lunch break, and then you've got, <laughs> you've got your trip home from work as a podcast of your choice. I mean, how, how much better could that be? All right, guys, for the second half of the show, as I said at the top, I'm joined by Mr. Who Trend Jazzman. That's how he likes to go on Twitter. Who runs a podcast I've known Who for a while through social media called Hitting the High Notes. He loves He's covered jazz for, what is it now, Who, three years? Yeah, I, I feel like the podcast has been going for at least, probably coming up on three years. So. so Who should, theoretically, have a better grasp on the jazz than what we do? Otherwise, he's not doing his job properly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so who man the Celtics and Jazz face off on Tuesday right yep that's correct the Jazz um, uh, fly home um, uh, they just uh, are in the midst of a, they, they, a lot of the Jazz fans are calling it deathuary because the schedule is hard they did a back to back against um, Atlanta and Indiana on uh, Thursday and Friday then they had a game against Indiana who just barely got done really tough gritty win for the Jazz against the Pacers so um, uh, three on the road trip, they're going to go home for a few days, uh, a couple days rest to take on the Celtics uh, on TNT. Actually, you know, you know, Shaquille O'Neal loves the Jazz. So good, a good game for TNT there. And it's been a great season for the Jazz so far. Um, they're dominating, really playing great basketball on both sides of the floor. What's changed this year to last? So um, I, I think um, uh, we did a, an NBA preview last year, you, uh, Brendan, and I on uh, our podcast. and. Uh, I I was asked this a lot last year, like I'm, uh, you know, because the Jazz were the darlings, last because they got Boyan Bogdanovich, they got Mike Conley, everybody was really on board with the Jazz, and I said something to the effect of, hey, you know, this is great, but the Jazz are still, you know, there's some depth issues, and I felt like this is always a two-year build for the Jazz. This year, the Jazz um, resigned Jordan Clarkson to what looks like a bargain of a contract now, but um, if you remember correctly, a lot of people were kind of questioning because the Jazz gave him 13 million and. The market was a little dry. Everyone's like, whoa, that's a lot of money for Jordan Clarkson. But Jordan Clarkson has been playing very well. The Jazz used their mid-level exception on uh, Derek Favors. Um, so the Jazz run nine deep right now, which, which is great. So the Jazz have finally got some depth. They got uh, a good back and center. Um, and the Jazz have just changed the way they played the game this year. Um, they have three to four shooters on the floor at all times. That gives a lot of space for Donovan and Mike Conley, who's playing a, you know near all-star levels. Um, uh, uh, here uh, to to work with a lot of space. Boyan Bogdanovich uh, started the year slowly, but um, he's always been out there for his gravity. Royce O'Neal is um, you know a high level starter on on a very good contract, and uh, Gobert playing like an all star as well. So the Jazz are just some uh, running. If you look at some of the chart, if you look at the shot charts for like the Atlanta game and the Charlotte game, you'll see that the Jazz have really gotten rid of all the uh, long twos, all the uh, uh, mid-range jump shots, like they're shooting either in the paint or or three-point shots, and that's working really well. From I mean, over the last two weeks, uh, cleaning the glass has them as the number third, number three ranked offense in the league, and again, number three defense in the league. Are you guys still using a defensive scheme where you're funneling wings in towards Gobert, follow and point guards for that matter? Are you, Are you still, still running, running that, that funnel type defense? Always kind of been the Jazz um, uh, mo is to. Um, you know, really, really play tough perimeter defense. Um, and 
my, my colleague talked about this, like um, how in Memphis it was, you know, don't let guys, um, uh, you know, get shots of our perimeter um, or, um, uh, you know, d- don't funnel. But in Utah, it's, a, it's all about a funnel system. You, you, you play tough on the perimeter defense because if they do beat you, you know, going in, you're either going to make them take a tough, you know, mid-range jumper, which is a low percentage, uh, true shooting percentage shot. Or they're going to go into Gobert and they're going to have to, you know, make a decision there. Um, uh, if you watch jazz games, a lot of times you'll see guys get into the paint. They see Gobert there and they just, you know, they, they draw back out because like, no, we're going to try to get a better shot than that. So so when the Celtics come to town and they're running, they possibly have Jalen Brown back. They're going to be using Jason Tatum. Kemba Walker should be looking for a bounce back game after his uh, terrible outing against the Suns. What's your concerns in how the Jazz play defense and how Boston can manipulate that? Well, I mean, like, like those guys do mention right there. Those are like bona fide stars. Like Jason Tatum, right, is a bona fide all star. Um, going to be very good for him. And, J- and Jalen Brown, um, uh, this, this is the best year he, he's had um, as a Celtic. Oh yeah, by miles, by absolute miles, yeah. Right, like I mean, he, he's taking the leap. Like um, uh, you, you you have your one and two already. Uh, like you said, Kemba Kemba's dangerous. Like um, I know he's had a slow start since um, coming back from injury. But you know, that's a guy that um, uh, is a microwave. Like you, you don't want him. You don't want him to get hot. Um, the Jazz um, uh, really want to focus teams. Um, you, you don't want. I've seen Jason Tatum like just get what he wants, right? So if you're the Jazz, you, you're worried about Jason Tatum just just manipulating your your um, uh, your, uh, uh, your defense. Uh, the last game the Jazz lost. Uh, the last like the Jazz are like thirteen or fourteen or fourteen to fifteen now. Uh, in the last 15 games, the one game that the Jazz lost is because Nikola Jokic went hog white, went for 32 points in the first half against the against the Jazz. Um, it got better in the second half, but but really, uh, you know, we, we can't. The Jazz can't let um, the guys just go. You know, you, you have to make them work for it. And Nikola Jokic did not work for did not have to work very hard in the first half of that game. The Jazz lost. Uh, but late like today, I'm a Gobert kept the Sabonis. Sabonis um, uh, really, really um, away from doing his game, and the Pacers play really tough. Um, the Celtics play tough. Uh, I know that the Celtics are kind of in the East. They're really trying to get on the right. If you get everybody healthy, the Celtics can be really dangerous because if you let Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and everybody just start rolling, and it, it's it's going to be a bad time um, for the Jazz to try to play catch up again. Yeah. So an interesting point here is before the game against the Suns, the Celtics came in uh, with their last two week stats. I like to use. I like to look at these when I'm looking at cleaning the glass because you get more of a feel for the type of runs that teams are on. So Celtics are ranked fourth in defense, one spot directly behind Utah. But Utah's offensive is ranked quite considerably higher. The Celtics are at 11. Utah's at number three. Outside of Donovan Mitchell, where are your points coming from? Is Gobert doing much damage in the paint, or are you using him just as a a screen guy and then asking him to seal off lanes for guys? Right. So that that, that was like the problem with the Celtics last year, right? Is that um. Uh... They sort of like, and that's why they went. They got Tristan Thompson in the offseason, uh, the Miles Turner rumor. Um, and I know they're running them uh, Tice and, uh, and Thompson, but um, I, I guess the Hornets, the the Jazz got four like really easy dunks. Like I'm a, uh, I remember I do highlights now, and so um, there are plays where you know Gobert ran to the rim, and then you know Cody Zeller is not going to stop Gobert, and if you're not going to stop Gobert on those screen those screen and rolls. Those, those are easy dunks. So everybody has gravity. In the starting lineup, so Gobert has that rolling gravity, um, rolling toward the basket because he rim runs as, as well as almost any other big man in, in, in the league. Um, his weakness, I guess, is some uh, he, 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 you know, he's not a post up player, but Roscoe, you know, nobody's asking Gobert to be the best post up player in the league. Um, they're asking him to catch the ball near the, the basket and then um, go up strong, which he sort, sort of has a problem doing, but. If you know, if you're not gonna put a body on him, he will just get dunks on you, and that makes it hard because you have Boyan Bogdanovich out there, Joe Ingles, Russell O'Neill, Jordan Clarkson, Mike Conley. If he's Mike Conley, if he's hamstring, if his hamstring feels better by Tuesday, fingers crossed. And Donovan Mitchell, like all those guys have gravity. Like uh, you know, Royce O'Neill, Jordan. I mean, everybody can shoot threes on the Jazz, and the Jazz are shooting. Uh, you know, they're they're shooting a lot of a lot of threes this season. Uh, they they just broke their franchise record again. They, they broke it twice. They broke it once against the Milwaukee Bucks, and they hit 26 threes against the Hornets. So the Jazz are shooting a lot more and hitting it at a high clip because uh, I mean 26 three pointers is a lot for any team. But this Jazz team, 
is really making you work on the defensive end, and you can't double anybody, and you, you got you got to stay home. Like you get you got to have your guys guard Gobert at the rim when he run uh, rim runs because uh, you can't leave Bojan Bogdanovic open for quarter three. So the majority of your offense at the moment, if I'm looking, Royce O'Neal's been fantastic from the non-corner three. He's shooting uh, 47%. Bojan Bogdanovic is, well, in fact, Royce O'Neal and Bogdanovic and Mitchell and Conley and Ingles have all been fantastic from the perimeter. Uh, these guys are all sitting around the mid-80th to 90th percentile, apart from O'Neal that's right up there in the 96th percentile for non-corner threes. You guys are really, really stacked in terms of perimeter offense. And then on the interior, you've got guys like Derek Favors, who I think has been one of the more unsung defensive pieces over the last few years. I think um, last year, if you look at how the Pelicans played, they were really bad defensively until Favors came back from injury. And then he sorted those guys out. Has he had a similar impact for you? I mean, look, when I'm looking at it, I'm, the way the Suns just beat Boston was by shrinking the floor when people were trying to penetrate. You guys run more of a funnel system, but do you, I'm under the assumption that you, your wings are pinching in as well. So I'm just trying to figure out for the people listening, where are the Boston shots most likely to come from? Are you guys happier with people taking those three-point shots? Do you want to funnel them mid-range? Because Boston, uh, Boston are really good from that mid-range area. I know it's a true shooting uh, dead zone, but Jalen Brown's biggest jump has been from the mid-range. Tatum is a killer from the mid-range. And to be honest with you, Campbell Walker seems like he can only hit mid-range shots at the moment. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Jazz are going to give you mid-range shots now. Now, like what you just said, right? Like the Celtics are are thriving in the mid-range, but uh, in regular season games, I think the Jazz kind of stick to like, all right, we're not going to you know make a new game plan for one game in the regular season because uh, that's happened against the, the uh, sorry the Spurs last year, where Demar Derozan beat the Jazz a bunch of times because. Um, he was he was thriving in the mid range. He would go for you know almost thirty every game against the Jazz. But on the other hand, like I'm, uh, you know, Jazz are, are going to run you out the two point line, and they're going to make sure that you don't come to paint. So if you can hit those mid range uh, jumpers, the Jazz will probably uh, uh, live with it, and they just hope they can outscore you, and they hope they can um, uh, that um, uh, eventually those mid range jumpers don't don't fall, and that you know that they will pick it up because. The Jazz um, uh, don't run like a pace of space. They don't run like a, at a high, super high pace. They just run really efficient, um, uh, uh, efficiently when they when, when they do run an offense. And then you've got guys like Rudy Gobert, who's sitting exactly middle of the pack for bigs in uh, finishing around the rim. He's 50th percentile, finishing 67% by the rim. When you watch the Celtics, I don't know if you saw this game, the Celtics versus the Clippers, the biggest struggle the Celtics had was trying to contain Zubac as a rim runner and a role man and Zubac was pretty much getting whatever he wanted down low what's Gobert what's Gobert's um, post offense like I know you said he doesn't back guys up but is he is he going to be comfortable running through traffic receiving the pass and finishing with the dunk or is he more of a I'll seal I'll get the ball post up and then look to create some secondary offense what are we looking to see from him in terms of offense Rim running, rim running, and dunking is uh, going to be a forte. Like you know, for Celtics fans, watch out for Mike Conley pick and roll, Joe Ingles pick and roll. Joe Ingles is a very good ball handler. Um, oops, toward the rim. Uh, they like to throw the ball toward the rim for Gobert. And what Jazz fans would love to see is Gobert go up really strong. But um, Gobert has a tendency to not always go up for the dunk. And so the reason why his um, uh, at the rim percentage is as low as it is because he he does try to lay it up a lot. Um, and it, it's harder. There's a lot of bodies out there. There's two or three, you know, one or two bodies down there um, uh, uh, with him. Um, if Gobert could um, uh, catch and dunk uh, more, that'd be great for Jazz fans. But I mean, Gobert is still doing well enough that it's, it's not. I mean, if, if we're nitpicking what the Jazz offense is, it, it, problems are, that is one of the problems that Gobert is not super strong once he gets the ball in the post. But he does. He, he's a great rim runner. Um, he's good at catching hoops. He's good at Catching high and finishing high, uh, it's just that um, uh, if you if you don't get the ball in the exact right spot, it is hard for him to get a dunk off. And if you if you at least just challenge him for on a layup, there's a chance that he misses because um, uh, he he does kind of rush those layups. So um, uh, yeah, as you know, Tice Thompson, whoever you're gonna have them out there, um, challenge him, 
you know, even put some, you get physical with him, go bear down, down to the paint when he get, when he catches those um, uh, rim running um, uh, passes. And um, uh, that's how you um, uh, get Gobert to be a little uncomfortable. Like Gobert's had, you know, he's had 29 points and 20 rebounds. And there's games where he scores in single digits. And just how the game plan goes is what the, what the offense gives him. So what's really encouraging me about this matchup? As we've said, the Jazz are very much a perimeter-based offense. A lot of their work comes from behind the three-point line because there's so many killers there. The Celtics' defense is best when they're guarding perimeter-based teams. The Celtics usually start to fall apart when there's a lot of dribble-drive penetration with secondary offense coming off the kickouts. If you guys are to drive the ball, what's another encouraging aspect for me in terms of the Celtics? The Jazz aren't really a great foul-drawing team when shooting the ball. Um... The only guy that's really drawing shooting fouls is Gobert. He's uh, drawing 25.1% of his shooting um, f- personal fouls. Sorry, 25.1% of the time he's fouled is when he's in the shooting motion. And the only guy that's really getting the and one calls is Donovan Mitchell. So if you guys are getting run off the line and you are being forced to play more of a uh, drive game, how confident are you that's going to work out well for the Jazz? Um, the, the Jazz, have, I mean, uh, the Hawks tried to fight and the Hawks have... Uh... Uh, didn't an okay version of it, but you get like the the guys who can really hurt you on. I mean, the guys, the Jazz have three guys. They guys have they have Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, and Jordan Clarkson. Um, uh, you know, a leading six man of the year candidate, Jordan Clarkson, who um, you give the ball in their hands and let them create. Um, uh, those guys, those guys can hit, hurt you in the mid range. There's three level scores: mid range, um, uh, uh, in the paint, and perimeter. So those are the guys that you know make a, a big difference and you let boy and boy likes to drive too i'm not very confident when he when he's um, uh, the primary ball handler to drive on 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 an offensive set but he does like to do it every once in a while royce i said is, is, is a guy that um uh, get his benefits from a lot of this because you know royce's guy will usually try to be the one that helps and um uh, the jazz have been very good at finding him this year um so you got those three guards plus some of joe ingles um uh, is actually very crafty uh, they call him Slow Mo Joe for a reason, but uh, yeah, you you put uh, you put uh, Joe Ingles in uh, a pick and roll situation, and it's pretty dangerous there. So uh, yeah, that is probably uh, if you can guard the three point shot, it does make it tough for the Jazz. But the Jazz do like they have three to four guys that they are very comfortable running the pick and roll through. And um, uh, if Donovan Mitchell played like he played today against the Pacers. Good luck. I mean, Donovan Mitchell played at a, a superstar level today. Um, and if Mike Conley, when Mike Conley's back, Mike Conley, I'm a, I don't know if you can see the stats there, at least a couple weeks ago, he was the highest in Raptor, and um, he was like the highest plus minus uh, player in the NBA. So I'm just looking at Mike Conley's stats now. I think the last question I want to ask you is the Celtics have struggled with their bench unit a lot. There's uh, been times when that bench unit's come on and the offense has stagnated. How's the Utah bench been doing against teams? Has that been a reliable machine, or has it also been hit and miss with the production you get once it's the predominant bench unit on the floor? Um, uh, and this is so ironic because like last year the Jazz bench um, had no depth and was pretty awful. Now this year, there's a lot of things to fix. Um, uh, the offseason. So you, you mentioned Derek Favors. Derek Favors, we came back to Utah after one year in New Orleans uh, for the mid-level section. Derek Favors. Um, Going down from Gobert to Favors defensively is you can't even you, it does it, you can't even notice it. Like um, uh, Favors plays uh, really great defense, like you said, and so um, uh, that was a big thing last year. Last year when Gobert was off, the defense just um, uh, absolutely crumbled. Sometimes now with their Favors on there, that's a great steady force. Um, uh, plus he's, he's he's a very good pick and roll partner for Joe Ingles. Uh, Joe Ingles is coming off the bench um, uh, as a, as a you know a tertiary um, uh, uh, playmaker. Uh, when Conley and um, Mitchell aren't playing point guard, Jordan Ingles has the ball a lot. Jordan Clarkson, like I said, is a leading sixth man of the year candidate. He's averaging close to 20 points a game, I assume. Uh, I haven't checked the stats lately, but he's up there. He's probably up uh, above 17 at least. Um, and that guy's a microwave. When you let Jordan Clarkson um, uh, get started, uh, he's having uh, an amazing year. Um, that was that. That's the top eight. And the Jazz have a George Niang at, as their ninth player. Some teams don't use that. The Jazz use a ninth player, you know, for twelve minutes a game or so. And Georgia right now is playing very well um, uh, as as in his role as a backup or you know backup backup four. And uh, he can shoot three, so he can hurt you when he's out there because no no one really scouts George Yang. Um, 
if the Jazz are without Mike Conley, you might see some Mieoni, uh a second round pick from the Jazz from a couple years ago that plays will play sparingly. Um, but uh he's a he's a pretty good defender. He can shoot the ball. So the Jazz one through nine are, are really impressive. That's the bit been the biggest uh, change we've seen this year that like when Gobert is off the floor or uh, Mitchell's off the floor, the Jazz offense still runs fine. The Jazz defense still runs fine. Uh, and that's the luxury that a lot of teams, you know, don't have um, uh, to have a, a solid one through nine. Yeah, the Celtics don't have that luxury either. So um, I want to let you get out of here with the final question of what is your prediction, score and final um, outcome? Oh boy, score. Um, you know, the Jazz, the Jazz are scoring a lot. The Jazz are, the Jazz are uh, just super hot right now. There's, um, I, I'm, I'm more of a pessimistic person myself, but, you know, I feel this Jazz team, uh, there's a, a lot of people who are, if you're in Utah, you, you've been hurt a lot. Uh, Jazz fans, um, uh, expect the worst, but I think this Jazz team is built, this Jazz team is built for the 72 game season. If Mike Conley plays or doesn't play, I think the Jazz still win. Um, so, so right now they're playing right, um, I think one cohesive unit. Uh, I think the Jazz will win by, it'll be close. Uh, I think the Jazz could probably win by seven or eight points. It'll be over a hundred points for each team. Um, I don't know, let's say like one twelve to one oh five. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining the Jazz. I'm also have them, uh, 3,500 fans in the stands, too, and that kind of makes a difference. Yeah, that's going to be a huge difference. I feel like that might have been part of it against the Suns as well, because the Suns had some people in the stands. Who I want to thank you for taking the time to jump on with me and giving the Celtics fans a little bit of an insight into what they can expect on Tuesday when they come up against the Jazz. All right, yeah. Uh, I hope to see you guys again. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I love what you do here, man. And, uh, yeah, please invite me on whenever you, you want to talk basketball. Always, man. Thank you again, Who. Yeah, thanks.